we turn now to our sermon portion where we're continuing on the Gospel of Mark, uh, where we have witnessed Jesus and his power of over, we witnessed Jesus' power calming a storm. And then from last week, we see him having power over demonic forces, over the powers of evil, that even evil itself cannot contain Jesus. And the theme about today's passage is how God uses his power, or Jesus uses his power to address our shame, because a lot of us are filled with it. We don't know exactly what to do with it. And so that's what today's passage addresses for us. And so we turn here to now Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 34. And if you guys are able, can you please stand with me as we hear the reading of God's word? Mark chapter 5, verse 21 through 34. These are God's holy, inspired, and life-giving words. Uh, Let's give them our full attention today. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet, and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garments. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she, had, she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Be healed of your disease. Amen. Thus goes the reading of God's word. May he continue to bless it for us as the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Friends, please be seated. And would you join your hearts with mine in a simple word of prayer? Lord, as we come before you, we pray that you remove many of the distractions of our hearts and minds to simply be still before you, to hear your teaching, to hear about your heartbeat, how it beats for us. And so work on our hearts as we simply come before you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When's the last time you talked about periods? When's the last time? I'm not talking about punctuation marks, but when's the last time you talked about a woman's menstrual cycle out open and in public? When's the last time you were freely able to do so? Probably never. It's not exactly easy conversations to bring up. It makes us tense up a little bit. It's a little bit uncomfortable, even though it's a natural function of a woman's body. 
There's this gynecologist named Jen Gunter. She's this uh, gynecologist, and she writes books on how the female body functions, especially during the menstrual period. And um, she also talks about menopause, these subjects and topics that no one is willing to touch, no one is willing to write a book on. Because after all, what's the market value for such a thing that everyone has a hard time bringing up? But she's like this avid feminist, and she gave this TED Talk, and I was watching it, and she's like advocating how, you know, we, we, we need to take away the stigma and the shame away from menstrual cycles. It's a normal function of a female's body, and we shouldn't have to hide or be ashamed of this. And like the whole crowd just claps, yes, as they're talking about this, right? And the thing is, for me, I'm willing to bet you didn't wake up to get to church to talk about periods, right? But the thing for me is this. If it's so hard for us to talk about something that's natural, how much more so is it uncomfortable for us to bring about the things in our lives that are unnatural? Right? What are some of those natural, unnatural things that you may perhaps feel? Maybe it's your past. Maybe it's your sexuality. Maybe it's your politics. I don't know what it is, but there's something inside of you that feels this feels unnatural. That's the feeling of shame. And wherever you cannot, wherever you feel very uh, uh, difficult to, to bring up and talk openly about, shame is there. Shame is present. The things you are silent about. And the thing about shame is that there's, um, it isolates you as if you're the only one. And so it heightens this great sense of fear that if anyone knew about this about me, I can't be loved. But that's not true. That's not the state that God leaves us in. See, in this passage, we find a woman who literally embodies shame on so many different levels because of an unnatural menstrual bleeding that she had for 12 whole years. And as this woman embodies this shame, Jesus meets her and redeems her in her shame, which is also the same heart that he has for all of us. Three things I want us to consider about this passage. One, there's a call for help. Two, there's a concealed healing. And last of all, there's a compassionate heart. A call for help, a concealed healing, and a compassionate heart. Let's look at the first point here. Call for help. Let's set the scene a little bit. Jarius meets Jesus. And verse 22 says that he's this ruler of the synagogue. And to understand, this, the synagogue, it, it, it's the center of life for Jewish, Jewish people. Right? That's, that's where people socialize. That's where people learn what it means to be Jewish. Um, it, it, it's the very imprint of their identity. Circles around the synagogue. And Jarius being the uh, ruler of the synagogue means that he was a community leader. He was well respected by everyone, all his peers. He had connections. He's a powerful man. Everyone knew him. But because of his position... This also means that he is well acquainted with the Pharisees and the scribes. Because a couple chapters ago, we realized that the Pharisees and scribes, they're after Jesus. Right? They want to take Jesus down. They even sent scribes from Jerusalem 
right, the brightest minds of the scribes to indict Jesus on whatever charge. Do whatever, say whatever kind of obscenities that you can, just bring this guy down. See, that's the team that Jarius is still a part of. So for Jarius to actually go out into the open and meet Jesus means he's risking his position in a sense. But yet, with all the risk that's involved here, none of this matters. Because verse 23, Jarius pleads, My little girl is at the point of death, so Jesus, lay your hands on her so that she may live. That's a desperate cry of a father. How else can we not feel for him? This powerful, influential leader has begged for help. How can any of us deny such a request? So as Jesus receives us, he follows him, and the scene sort of splits here. As Jesus follows Jarius, you find verse 25, and there was, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 whole years. See, according to Leviticus 15, she is not able to enter the synagogue or, or the temple, as a matter of fact. She is not allowed to enter any house of worship because for her to have her menstrual period means she is determined, uh, labeled unclean. Unclean. So 12 years, she's not able to be part of the community because of her condition. 12 years, no one sat next to her. 12 years, she lived pr- probably most likely on her own. She's all by herself. And we think this as modern folk, right? And we think, well, this is why I can't believe in the Bible. It's not progressive enough. This is so patriarchal. How can they consider this unclean? It's offensive. But you have to understand the context a little bit here. Because in the Jewish life, Levitical law also said that you cannot eat the foods uh, of animals that are drenched still in blood, that have fresh blood around it. You're not supposed to do that. That was considered unclean. And it's a weird law. But this whole idea of blood, really for the Jewish life, stood for, it represented life force. Blood represented life force. And so there was this certain uh, uh, respect towards what blood represented. It's life. And so for the woman to have this discharge, Levitical law wasn't criticizing the natural functions of a woman's body. Rather, it was affirming the sanctity of life. That's what that's about. But here's this woman in this condition. For 12 years, unable to be close to God. See, this woman and Jarius are two polar opposites. Jarius is a ruler. This woman is an outcast. Jarius is powerful and influential, while this woman is vulnerable, unnoticed. If anything, Jarius probably knows this woman very well because he probably put out the notices, hey, this woman is unclean. Make sure you stay away from her. Avoid her. Yet two polar opposite people, they intersect where Jesus is at. Because why? They both find themselves at the end of their rope. They are both helpless. That's exactly where God loves to meet us, guys. 
where we're helpless. The assumption I believe a lot of us carry is that, you know, this word for helplessness, it, it, it's for people that aren't able to have the correct amount of resources, people who aren't able to find jobs for themselves, whatever it may be. That's our definition. You, you're you're kind of unable to do life on your own. But I want us to consider one thing here. Take, for example, Tom Brady. Seven-time Super Bowl champion. I'm not a fan of Tom Brady, but I'm just using him as an example. Greatest quarterback of all time. No one would ever consider him helpless. Yet after 13 years of marriage, all the news headlines broke out saying Tom Brady is divorced from Giselle. This is not about me being judgmental on a celebrity as if that person's not a human being. It's public news. I just want us to consider something here. Here are two individuals who most of the world would consider successful, influential, powerful. There's nothing helpless about them. They have all sorts of accolades. But when it comes to marriage, helpless. There's something about our lives where we are absolutely helpless about And you have to admit this, because what's the point of church then? If there's not something in your life where you know, down to your very bones, you're helpless about, when you realize you're at the end of your rope in that, that's a moment of grace. I actually need to hear from you. I want you to repeat after me, okay? Let's do this little group exercise. Maybe we'll feel better, okay? I want you to say this with me. You You guys with me? Okay. I... I am helpless. Let's say it with a little more gusto. Let's do it again. I am helpless. Better. But God is merciful. Hey, welcome to new life, everybody. Because that's the reality of who we are. We're helpless unless God intervenes. And if you can admit this, it's the beginning of healing of many wounds without having to conceal, without having to hide anything. Which brings us to the second point, concealed healing. See, when we cannot admit our helplessness, here's what happens. Verse 26. She had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. Here's what I feel like she does. She does what every other human being typically tries to do. She tries to fix her own problems by herself, and it made things worse. The thing about doctors back then is they don't have this concept of medical school or rotations to get all this kind of experience, and there certainly weren't a sense of specialists back in the day, especially one like gynecology. So if you see a physician back then, you, you, you kind of, and you had an uncommon disorder, you were kind of taking a gamble with your life. Because the physicians back then, they would take speculative guesses at best. Might maybe perhaps cut off a limb or gouge out an eye. And if you survived, then great, the cure worked. But if you died, then on to the next patient because there's no such thing as malpractice right back then, right? And so you were taking a gamble with your life. You are gambling your own life. She tries everything. None of it worked. 
she is worse. When you and I try to fix our spiritual problems, it makes it worse. It really does. So here's what I imagine. Like, you think you have, like, this marital strife and marriage problems, and so you think, okay, I know what to do. Let me just write a list of everything that's wrong with you, and you write a list of everything that's wrong with me. Let's swap it, and then let's work on it. You guys, how many of you guys think that will work out? Yeah, I thought so. Doesn't work. Oh, I have financial problems. I know, just make more money. You make more money, and yet I swear to you, everyone will still say, I don't make enough. You know what the problem is? Spiritual problems cannot be cured with man-made solutions. That's only a work of God. This woman tried it all, and it made her condition worse. And finally, she gives up. And she's so desperate, she says, I'll give the God thing a try. So she hears the reports that Jesus is around, and in her mind she thinks, if I just touch his cloak, I'll be made well. It's an absolute superstition. Who told her that, right? It's an absolute superstition. It it makes me think about when Air Jordans came out for the first time. The, The commercials advertised, if you put on these Jordans, you'll be like Mike, right? That's the advertisement. All my friends put on the Jordans, and they still suck at basketball. It doesn't work. Superstition. So this lady, this woman, she thinks, if I just touch it, I'll be made well. That's her game plan. The day finally comes, she sees Jesus, and it's a crowd, perfect conditions for her to just go incognito. And as soon as she sees her chance, she notice, notice this detail. She walks up behind him. She walks up behind him, and she grabs the garment, touches it. Perfect execution. No one notices. And verse 29, immediately the blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. It worked. Twelve whole years of suffering undone by split second based on a superstition it worked it's all undone now she can go back and live her life quietly a normal life but Jesus has to ask who touched me who touched my garments how did he even know you know like maybe perhaps I'm thinking she, when she grabbed the garment, she might have held on for an extra second or two, just making sure that divine juices were flowing onto her or something like that. Maybe, maybe there was a little bit of a rough tug. Who touched my garments? I mean, even the disciples think that's such a ridiculous question. I mean, if, if power, if if power went out from Jesus, does it mean that he experienced this momentary weakness as if part of himself, he wasn't 100% God at that moment, right? It makes you think. I mean, just a couple passages passages ago, Jesus had the, the power to still a storm. Jesus had power to cast out demons. And when he was doing that, there's no mention of an ounce of his power being tampered with. He was still fully God. 
Yet a woman that just touches his clothes, he feels power go out of him. It's strange. You see, in verse 29, it says that she felt. And then when you look down to verse 30, it says, it says that Jesus perceived. Two different words, right? But in the Greek, it's the same exact word that literally means to know. Jesus knew. It's the language of intimacy. Jesus knows that the woman's, she knows, he knows the woman's shame and wounded life. You see, in the Bible, these ideals of curses and blessings are only effective unless there is an authoritative power. And only God has power over both. So when Jesus knew that power had gone out from him, his, he's connecting to our woundedness. He's connecting to this wo- woman's woundedness and simply saying, I feel your pain, and I don't just feel it. I know what it is. And I promise you, I'll reverse it. You don't have to hide. Stop hiding. An older brother told me that in your 20s and 30s, you can kind of blame all your problems of who you are on your parents. Right? Everything that you struggle with in your 20s and 30s, you can blame your parents all you want. But how they raised you. And once you hit your 40s, he says, it's all on you. And so there's this thing. There's a lot that I'm, I realize what he's saying, and I, I'm working on it myself. I grew up in a home where literally no one talked about their feelings at all. No one talked about feelings. I, don't, I didn't even know what a feeling was back then. No one talked about feelings. And now that I have, I live with two kids that talk about their feelings all the time all the time from I'm sad, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm mad, you smell. They talk about their feelings all the time. It's a little bit overwhelming for me sometimes. They don't suppress how they feel. They don't think about a proper moment to bring these things up. They just tell me at the moment. You know, my counselor um, was praying for me this past week, uh, for me and Kathy, and one of the things that he said in his prayer really struck with me. This time I heard his prayer, and he said, God, we tend to approach you like we do our own parents, because that's all we know. But none of our parents are perfect, and only you are. So teach us. I like, it stuck to me. This woman's approach to Jesus is exactly what she knew. She was unclean. She has too much shame. Therefore, she is unworthy to even show her face. So she goes from behind. She goes from behind. The fact that she went behind him is telling that she's too afraid of him. She's too afraid of him knowing. I believe that's us. We approach God with our wounds based on what we know. But if only we knew what God actually knows. What Jesus actually knows is that he has a compassionate heart towards us. Which is the last point here. Who touched me? 
Jesus is bringing this woman out of hiding. And as he asked the question, verse 33, she couldn't contain it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. You ever have this conversation out in public in a larger crowd and you're talking with a good friend and you bring up some sensitive topic and when you're talking about something sensitive, you feel like the whole room just hushed up just to listen to what you're talking about. You guys ever have those experiences? Well, that's this. The whole crowd just went silent and is listening in on this woman. She told the whole truth, which means she told them everything. She's airing out everything about her menstrual problems. She's airing out everything about the fact that she knows she's not supposed to be there. So she's convicting herself. She's letting out everything. She tells the whole truth. It's not just embarrassing to air out all these problems. It's also a risk for her. This is an unclean person in the midst of around people. And yet, regardless of the risk, she tells it all. Her superstition is turned into faith. She ditched her plan and simply came clean. That's what faith is. Faith in God means you ditch all your efforts at managing your own shame. The writer Anne Lamont, she put it this way, that she heard about a nun begging God to take away her character defects away from her. Right? Something probably embarrassing. Take away these character defects. And after years of, this, of these prayers, God finally got back to her and said, you know what, I'm not going to take anything away from you. I'm not taking anything from you. You have to give it to me. Tell the whole truth. Tell the whole truth. It's the only way you can understand the heart of God for you. See, as the woman tells the whole truth, here is God's heart. Here is Jesus' heart towards her. Verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of all your disease. Jesus is technically, an, uh, he's not our spiritual father. He's technically our older brother. And never once do you ever witness Jesus actually using this term daughter in at least the gospel of Mark so far. And the fact that he says your disease will be healed, past tense, it already happened. But why does he mention it past tense like this? Like as if now it's in effect. You know what I think is going on? Jesus is acting as a priest, as a mediator on our, on our behalf of God, on behalf of God the Father. And what Jesus is essentially doing is, part of Levitical law is that once the unclean person becomes clean, is that a priest has to declare them clean. And Jesus is declaring this woman clean for the crowd to see. But there's one last aspect that's required. In order to become clean, a sacrifice has to be made. Where's the sacrifice? Where's the blood? A sacrifice with blood has to be made. Power went out from Jesus to stop the flow of blood only because it would continue to flow somewhere else. That Jesus 
was off, would offer himself on a cross as her ultimate sacrifice. Naked and open to public shame, blood flowed down from his hands, from his head, defiled for our sins, so that we might be called the righteousness of God. Or in other words, my son, my daughter. Here's two takeaways for us today. One is this. That practical application, right? We struggle with shame. We understand these concepts. What are we supposed to do about it, right? Like having an open mic night and everyone just lining up and sharing everything that they're humiliated about, that they're ashamed of, that's, that's not where we're going for here. But I'll tell you this. You need community. You need community. We're about to start up our community, uh, community life groups, community groups uh, in July. And I really want you to consider joining one. Because being part of community, as you build up safety, uh, uh, safe relationships, that's when you start opening up. That's when you tell the whole truth, little by little, in a safe way. To be, no- to be known and to know one another. That's what we're going for. Guys, if God is not ashamed of you, why should we carry and live with the shame ourselves? That's what I just want to present as we ponder upon this. Friends, uh, would you join me in a uh, closing in prayer? Uh, Lord, shame is this topic that's both big and also small because we've lived with it for so long and as long as we're functional in what we do, we don't really need to think about it, but it's still there. And shame can be something that uh, drains us of life, drains, of, uh, drains us of just simply being joyful before you. God, as we look to the cross and we're reminded of what Jesus, you have done for us, would you take away our shame as we simply openly confess the whole truth about who we are, letting go of our shame management projects, but instead coming to faith and saying, Lord, only you know how to fix my problems. It may be a slow process, but you're still at work nonetheless. Jesus, thank you that you are a great high priest who covers us and is the ultimate sacrifice for our lives. And so as we come before you, work in our lives and hearts a God who knows us a God who cares and a God who promises to sanctify us we pray these things in Jesus name Amen